This morning we will be attending to Ezekiel chapter, uh, chapters 15, 16, and 17, but we'll be focusing on chapter 16, and so that's what we'll read now. I'll make mention of the other chapters uh, in the course of the sermon. Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out in the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourished like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declared the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and by your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. 
And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. And you also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whorings to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whorings also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart? declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. You were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from all other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment. While no payment was given to you, therefore you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings and your lovers, with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy." And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Behold, everyone who uses proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite, and your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters." Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than than they in all your ways. 
As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace. You also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state." Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you've become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord." that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Amen. Congregational worship is a time of covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. We come to renew covenant with God. We do so by confessing to God that we have dishonored him. We reaffirm both his lordship over us and his promise to forgive penitent sinners. And we pledge to live according to his word. Friends, this is the Christian life, regular renewal of covenant. In this way, we press on in our pilgrimage to a heavenly city. In Ezekiel 15 through 17, God tells three stories to expose different facets of his people's infidelity and encourage covenant renewal. And each of these stories can help us renew covenant today as well. I'll deal quite briefly with chapters 15 and 17. We didn't read them. Their symbols are fairly simple and Uh, easily understood. In the first story, in chapter 15, God talks about a fruitless vine, a fruitless vine. This is an uncultivated plant growing, as he says in verse 2, among the trees of the forest. You've seen one 
probably, if you ever walked through the woods, Virginia creeper or uh, uh, wild grapevine or poison ivy, something that's not cultivated, not useful, just growing in the forest. Like the fruitless vines in Jesus' parables, this vine is good only to be burned. Why? Because God made people to be fruitful in every possible way, not just in terms of procreation. God wants his people to bless the earth. Covenant breakers, he says to his people through that parable in chapter 15, are of no use to God's grand plan for genuine human flourishing. That's chapter 15. The third story in chapter 17 is about a feral nation, an unsubmissive people, a wild people. The symbols of eagles and vines refer to Israel's distress under King Nebuchadnezzar. When the king first invaded Jerusalem, remember he deported to Israel uh, people like Ezekiel, but also the king at the time, Jehoiachin, along with other cultural leaders, and appointed in the place of Jehoiachin a puppet king in Jerusalem. That puppet king's name was Zedekiah. But Zedekiah rebelled and sought help from Egypt. In doing so, he not only violated Nebuchadnezzar's trust, he also broke God's covenant, God says in chapter 17, verse 19. So God's point here in that parable is this, to resist Babylon and seek help of all places from Egypt was to scorn God's loving discipline. I told you this was coming. I was going to discipline you for your unfaithfulness, and now I've done it, and you've, res- you've rebelled, you've resisted, you're a feral Nation, covenant breakers refuse to submit to God and his providence. But clearly in this set of three stories, the spotlight is on chapter 16 about a faithless bride. The story is much longer than the other two, probably the longest parable in the entire Bible. And I think it is the most personal because it is a marriage story. Life doesn't get more personal than marriage. Focusing on this parable provides a glimpse into God's heart for his people, as well as our responsibility before him. And so We're going to focus on chapter 16, this faithless bride, this opening up of God's heart and our responsibility toward him. And we want to see three things in this chapter. First of all, we want to understand the story and then the lesson and then the good news. First of all, then the story. It's a long chapter. You heard it, but let's condense it and try to understand what this parable is doing. Ezekiel 16 tells Israel's history. Now, I say Israel, but really it's the history of Judah symbolized in the city of Jerusalem. So specifically the southern kingdom of that divided kingdom uh, known as Judah. It tells that story by way of a parable as if Judah was an unfaithful wife to the Lord. This story, I think, as you heard it, touches a nerve Because it's very believable in this sense, like many failed marriages, 
a promising beginning comes to a wretched end. And the storyteller is no impartial narrator. uh, narrator. It is the scorned husband himself. God is the rejected husband. He's clearly, as he tells the story, hurt and angry. This isn't like a police report. This is the husband, the rejected one, telling his side of the story. And he spares few details. His story goes back long before their marriage to the bride's birth. She was unwanted, cast out into a field to die. But God rescued her, raised her to maturity. At the right time, he made his vow to her and he entered into covenant with her. Chapter 16, verse 8 says this, you became mine and, and vice versa, of course. God honored his bride with lavish presence, the best of everything. And the renown of her beauty and honor, the way that she was treated, the way that she glowed under the care of her husband. Uh, Verse 14 says, that record went forth among the nations. And that's true. The report we read in the Old Testament of the visit of the Queen of Sheba to this nation, she says, I I didn't know the half of what was told. The, The testimony of God's care for you has gone out into the nations, but I didn't know what was fact and what was fiction. And fact has been grander than the story. Israel was God's treasured possession. He didn't choose her, as the Bible says, in more theological form, uh, as opposed to the story form here, but he didn't choose her because of any winning characteristic. She was unwanted. She was rejected. She was cast out to die. God's choice made his bride lovely. It was his nurturing, his care, his tenderness, his sacrifice, his love. But God's bride rejected his love and its appropriate boundaries. Love has boundaries. And God's love, uh, as uh, toward his people, as any good marriage does, has boundaries. And that, that those boundaries indicate loyalty, demand loyalty and uh, exclusivity. But she became a prostitute, more wanton than anyone could imagine. God says this has never happened. A a wife so well cared for, so treasured, so loved, becoming so unfaithful. She was not pursued by perverted men, as you would expect in a a parable using a prostitute. Instead, she craved fornication. She asked to be violated. She didn't get paid for her services as, as inappropriate a transaction as that is. 
yet it is the norm in this fallen world in such an arrangement. Instead, she gave gifts to her lovers. And not only did she forsake her husband, she despised her children. God's bride, the people of Judah, literally slaughtered his children, as verse 21 says, and uh, delivered them up as an offering by fire. She had embraced the horrific practice common uh, among pagan peoples from the earliest days of child sacrifice. Examples of that in 2 Kings 16 and 21, Manasseh and others practicing this terrible sin. And in this way and in other ways, verse 46 says, she had become more abominable than all her neighbors, including her sister Sodom. And perhaps what God means here is you see some people sinning, whether it is by way of prostitution or theft or murder or whatever gross sin it might be. And yet when you understand the story behind it, you say, well, this is no less a sin, but I do understand how this has happened. I understand why she became a prostitute or why he stole or why they murdered. But there's no understanding this story, the way that she was treated. She became worse, more abominable than all of her sisters, including Sodom. And for her sins of murder, child murder and adultery, God would have his bride stoned and mutilated, verse 40. Significantly, her punishment would come from the nations with which she had sinned. And so the spiritual adultery, uh, in, in the spiritual adultery, Judah consorted with uh, the, the pagan nations around her. And now it would be the pagan nations like Philistia and like Egypt and like uh, Babylon and those who participated with her who would ex, uh, execute God's judgment against his people. This is the story of Judah, of Jerusalem, told by way of a parable. Now, I trust you'll agree that people hearing this story naturally sympathize with the husband and revolt against the wife's behavior. You had no sympathy, I think, for the behavior of the wife when you heard this story. You criticize her faults and sympathize with the husband. But as in Nathan's parable to David, this story describes the listener. The story describes the listener. And so as David is going along with Nathan's parable and, and he's saying, yes, this is terrible. I can't believe this is happening. So the, the hearer of this story is saying, but, at the, but the, the point really is, as Nathan said, you are the man, you are the bride. God is saying this to his exiled people in Jerusalem. And this report would go back to the people yet residing in Jerusalem. This is, in fact, the abiding story of covenant breaking in every generation, in every place, at every time. This is not just the story of Judah. This is the story of us, of our 
faithless response to God's care and his love and his kindness. This is, the story, this is a story for us and about us. And so what can it teach us? We want to turn second to the lesson. And God presents at least four actions that constitute covenant breaking. We must repent of them and recommit to covenant faithfulness. Four actions, first of all, God identifies spiritual adultery. A husband and a wife, the Bible says, become one flesh, one person bound together in loyalty and love and honor and and all the rest. Likewise, spiritual covenant breaking is not merely breaking rules. It's breaking a relationship. Never, never excuse your conscience, covenant member, by saying, well, it's just a rule. Rules can be broken and it'll be fine. You're, you're breaking a relationship. Sin is relational. This is why the great command is not simply to go along with all of the things that God requires of you. It is to love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and mind and strength to give yourself to him as in a marriage. Covenant membership demands heartfelt loyalty to God. And so the great sin in this parable, the sin that we must repent of as well as spiritual adultery, disloyalty to God. Second, there is the sin, the terrible sin of the of of rejection of generational discipleship now, i trust that's a, a, a too uh, gentle way of putting it but i think that's what's being described here rejection of generational discipleship the extreme example of non discipleship is surely child sacrifice i can't think of a worse example of refusal to discipline your children. Covenant breakers, in fact, trade their children for personal happiness in one way or another. And we may hear that and we say, well, not I, Lord. I don't do that. I don't offer child sacrifices. But we have to ask ourselves, are we protecting God's children Are we training them in faithfulness? Are we doing everything that we can, bringing them faithfully before the face of God in congregational worship, leading them in prayer? Are we doing what we can to train up our children to be disciples of Jesus Christ? The covenant is God's promise of friendship to believers and their children. And so we cannot keep covenant unless we do all that we can to help our children love and fear God. A great sin against the covenant of the Lord is rejection of generational discipleship demonstrated here in the extreme in child sacrifice. Third, there is the sin of indifference to God's mercy. 
indifference to God's mercy, forgetfulness of God's kindness. God says several times in this parable, you, Judah, have forgotten the days of your youth. Where were you? That's what God is saying. Where were you? You were cast out. You were abandoned. You were left to die in your blood. No one was going to come along and care for you, but I did. I was merciful to you. I loved you. Jerusalem forgot the days of her youth and instead trusted in her beauty, as verse 15 says. She'd forgotten when she was despised and dying and unwanted. But then God made her beautiful and she says, now I'm beautiful. I trust in what I have become. Jerusalem's youth was marked by God's tender care and her childlike trust. How easy it is to forget that. How easy it is to forget about God's mercy and and the trust that you have when you realize, perhaps for the first time, I'm lost, I'm undone. There's no rescue for me, if not through the blood of Christ. How easily we forget that. God made this orphan flourish like a plant of the field, God says, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment, verse 7, and then you forgot. Covenant breakers lose sight of God's mercy. Like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, they want his gifts and then grow to feel entitled to them. You cannot walk with God on any other basis than a self-conscious acceptance of his unmerited favor in Christ. Not your beauty, not your faithfulness, not your uh, whatever you may take comfort in. You have to despise that and, and remember the days of your youth, as this parable puts it. And then fourth, the terrible sin of self-centeredness. God says this in verse 49 and elsewhere in this chapter, Jerusalem was like her sister, Sodom. Is there a worse insult to give the people of God? Your sister is Sodom. You're like her. In fact, you're worse than her. But God describes Sodom's sin in surprising terms. We all have a category in our minds for the sin of Sodom which undoubtedly is accurate, uh, as told in the chapters in Genesis. But listen carefully to how God describes Sodom's sin in verse 49. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. That's the sin of Sodom? In part, yes, God says, that's the sin of Sodom. She had pride and excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Are we like that? How well does that describe us? I hope not all the time, but are there times when that could be said of us? 
excess of food, pride, prosperous ease, but no interest in the poor and needy. Put it this way. When kingdom opportunities arise, do we impulsively ask, how will this inconvenience me? When kingdom opportunities arise, do we instinctively ask, with knee-jerk reaction, how will this affect me? Do your wants come first? Do your preferences come first? God says that's the sin of Sodom that Israel had adopted as well. This tragic parable is damning evidence that God could legitimately divorce his bride. Now we, who all, most, many of us at least, who have grown up in an era of no-fault divorce, uh, know nothing of uh, the trials of ages past where a bride who was, or a groom who was mistreated would bring a case before the judge and had to prove that there were grounds for a divorce. There's no such thing in any of our states today. But this is what God is doing He's bringing a case against his people, grounds for divorce. He could legitimately divorce his bride. God's nation had broken covenant. She was unworthy of being called his wife. Without repentance, in other words, covenant people will be lost and will fall under a greater curse than outsiders. That's part of what God is saying in chapter 16. If you don't repent of these sins of covenant breaking, You'll be worse off than Sodom. Sodom looks righteous compared with you, and you'll be judged accordingly. But the chapter ends, thank God, with powerful promises. So we'll turn to the good news. Third, God's covenant of grace can never fail. Listen to verse 60. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. God says, I will remember. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because we know that God never forgets. He doesn't almost forget. He doesn't all of a sudden remember. But in a human way of speaking, something would happen long after Ezekiel's ministry that would make it seem like God had finally remembered his promise to trusting sinners. This is how John the Baptist's father put it in Luke chapter 1, verse 72, when he had been told that he and his wife would uh, have this son who would lead the way for the Messiah. The father put it this way, God has remembered his holy covenant. How has he remembered it? By giving us Jesus. Those who had sat in darkness and in the shadow of death would see light and walk in the way of peace. In the gift of his son, God atones for his people's unspeakable sins. God says that in verse 63, I will atone for you for all that you have done. And that's what God has done in the gift of Christ. In fact, this is why there is a church today. Jerusalem's sisters, Samaria, Sodom, symbolic of Gentile peoples, have become her daughters. Jerusalem's daughters. 
This is the prophecy also of Psalm 87. We sing it this way. Heathen lands and hostile peoples soon shall come the Lord to know. Nations born again in Zion shall the Lord's salvation show. That's what God is promising. You'll be born again, Zion, and in you, nations will be born again. Nations like Sodom, nations like Samaria, nations like wherever you came from, where your people came from, where they were worshiping trees or whatever they were doing. They've been born again in Zion. Zion's children, because God has covered our sin. The gospel is strangely hinted at in this chapter by the abominable practice of child sacrifice. People who sacrifice children, and it wasn't just Judah, other nations as well, people who sacrifice children, even today, reveal their guilty conscience and their sense that only an offering of innocence can atone for sin. That's a terrible perversion. But there's a recognition in child sacrifice that something's terrible, terribly wrong with me. And I don't know what to do, but perhaps this will do. In the gospel, God promises that he will cover your sin, which he has done in the perfect sacrifice of his willing son, Jesus Christ. All you have to do despite whatever sin you've done. All you have to do is to confess that you are unworthy to be called God's child and accept this gift with a believing heart. And so let us do that. Acknowledge our complete failure to keep the covenant of God and accept his grace, his gift of the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy God, we are disturbed by this chapter, sickened by it. The story is distasteful. We'd rather we didn't have to think about such behavior, analogous as it is uh, to so much of what is wrong with this world. But you have said it before us because it tells in part our story. You have been gracious to us and kind to us. You have brought us into your people, loved us, and we have taken that love for granted. We have broken covenant with you. We pray, Lord, that with humility, self-loathing, we would embrace your gifts, chiefly the gift of Christ, and accept your promise with a believing heart. Forgive our sins and help us to walk in the way of faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.